0: Welcome to Lifeline Theatres On The Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Rogers Park in Chicago, Illinois, we invite you to open your mind to Tales of Poe, a dimension of sensation, of sound, of stories and sonnets from Edgar Allan Poe. This is the second of four programs from the deep caverns of eerie macabre tales, just in time for All Hallows' Eve. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifeline theater. Our first story tonight is The Cask of Amontillado, performed by ensemble members Peter Greenberg and Patrick Blazell.
1: The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled. But I must not only punish. A wrong is unredressed when the Avenger fails to make himself felt as such. To him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile was now at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skilful in the Italian vintages myself and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered, my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand.
2: My dear Montresor!
1: (laughs) My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How?
2: Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of carnival?
1: But I have my doubts, and (laughs) I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado? I must entirely satisfy them.
2: Amontillado!
1: As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn it is he he will tell me
2: lucesi cannot tell amontillado from sherry
1: <laughs> and yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own come to your vaults oh my friend no i will not impose upon your good nature i perceive you have an engagement lucesi i have
2: no engagement <coughs> Come! My friend,
1: no, it is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with niter.
0: Let us go, nevertheless. The the cold is merely nothing. Montiado!
1: Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them specific orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux and, giving one of them to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The pipe? Oh, it is farther on, but... Observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls, Niter. It, Niter, uh, <laughs> how long have you had that cough? <laughs> it is nothing. Come, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected. Admired, beloved, you are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed, for me it is no matter. We will go back, you will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese.
2: Enough, the cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough.
1: (laughs) True, true. And, indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But we should use all proper caution. A draught of this Medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. He raised it to his lips with a leer.
0: I drink to the buried that repose around us.
1: And I... To your long life.
2: These vaults are extensive. The Montresaurs
1: were a great and numerous family. I forget your coat of arms. A huge human foot of gold in a blue background. The foot crushes a serpent whose fangs are embedded in its heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune No one
0: provokes me with impunity <laughs> good
1: <laughs> he laughed and threw the bottle upward with gesticulation i did not understand i looked at him in surprise he repeated the movement a grotesque one
2: you do not understand not i uh, then you are not of the masons
1: oh yes yes
2: you impossible a mason A mason. A sign. It is this,
1: I said, producing a trowel from beneath my cloak.
0: (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) You jest, but let us proceed to the amantiado.
1: Be it so, I said again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches and finally arrived at a deep crypt. At the most remote end of the crypt, there appeared another, less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth forming at one point a mound of some size within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones we perceived a still interior recess in depth about four feet in width three in height six or seven It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Uh, Proceed. Herein is the Amontillado. Uh, As for Lucchese... He is an ignoramus. Interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of a niche, and, finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the link about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Oh, Pass your hand over the wall. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I first must render you all the little attentions in my power.
0: The Amontillado?
1: True, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had, in a great measure, worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was. Not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth. And then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied.
2: Montresor! Montresor!
1: Montresor! 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 It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier, I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position.
0: <laughs> a Very good joke, indeed. An excellent jest. We uh, will have many a uh, rich laugh about it at the <laughs> Palazzo. So. <laughs> <laughs> Over
1: our wine. (laughs) Oh, the Amontillado. (laughs)
2: Yes, yes, the the Amontillado.
0: But is it uh, not getting late? Uh, Will they not be awaiting us at the Palazzo? Uh, The the Lady Fortunato and the rest. Uh, Let us be gone.
1: Yes, let us be gone.
0: For the love of God, Montresor!
1: Yes, for the love of God, Fortunato. Fortunato! I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew thick. On account of the dampness of the catacomb. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. May he rest in
0: peace. Our next story is The Raven, performed by ensemble member Andres Enriquez.
3: Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow. Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. Lenore, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. "'Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter. In there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. (laughs) Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, Art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore? Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by replies so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it mutters, it is only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight. I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird-and-bust-and-door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet-violet lining that the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press. Ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by a seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels he has sent thee. Respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil. Whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land unchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there, bon in Gilead, tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that god we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden from the angels named Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden from the angels named Lenore. Quoth the raven. Nevermore.
2: <laughs>
3: Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's nice plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Wolf the raven, never more. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted, nevermore.
0: Our final story is Never Bet the Devil Your Head, performed by ensemble members, Anthony Care, Katie McLean Hainsworth, and Christopher Hainsworth.
4: It is not my design to vituperate my deceased friend Toby Dammit, but he himself was not to blame for his vices. They grew out of a personal defect in his mother. She did her best in the way of flogging him while an infant for babies like tough steaks are invariably the better for beating, but poor woman, she had the misfortune to be left-handed and a child flogged left-handedly had better be left unflogged. The world revolves from right to left. It will not do to whip a baby from left to right. If each blow in the proper direction drives an evil propensity out, it follows that every thump at an opposite one knocks its quota of wickedness in. I was often present at Toby's chastisements, and even by the way in which he kicked, I could perceive that he was getting worse and worse every day. At last I saw, through the tears in my eyes, that there was no hope of the villain at all. And one day, when he had been cuffed until he grew quite black and blue in the face, and no effect had been produced beyond that of making him wriggle himself into a fit, I could stand it no longer, but went down upon my knees forthwith, and uplifting my voice, made prophecy of his ruin. The fact is that his precocity in vice was awful. At five months of age, he used to get into such passions that he was unable to articulate. At six months, I caught him gnawing a pack of cards. At seven months, he was in the constant habit of catching and kissing the female babies. At eight months, he refused to put his signature to the temperance pledge. Thus he went on, increasing in iniquity month after month, until, at the close of the first year, he not only insisted upon wearing mustaches, but had contracted a propensity for cursing and swearing and for backing his assertions by bet. Through this latter most ungentlemanly practice, the ruin which I had predicted to Toby Dammit overtook him at last. The fashion had grown with his growth and strengthened with his strength so that when he came to be a man, he could scarcely utter a sentence without interlarding it with a proposition to gamble. Not that he actually laid wagers, no, he would as soon have laid eggs. With him the thing was a mere formula, nothing more. His expressions were simple if not altogether innocent expletives, imaginative phrases wherewith to round off a sentence. When he said, I'll bet you so-and-so, nobody ever thought of taking him up. But still, I could not help thinking it my duty to put him down. The habit was an immoral one, and so I told him. It was a vulgar one. This I begged him to believe. It was discountenanced by society. Here I said nothing but the truth. It was forbidden by an act of Congress. Here I had not the slightest intention of telling a lie. I entreated... He smiled. I preached. He sneered. I threatened. He swore. I kicked him. He called for the police. I pulled his nose. He blew it.
2: I bet the devil my head that you will not venture to try that experiment again.
4: Poverty was another vice which the peculiar physical deficiency of Damett's mother had entailed upon her son. He was detestably poor, and this was the reason, no doubt, that his expletive expressions about betting seldom took a pecuniary turn. I will not be bound to say that I never heard him make use of such figures of speech as, I'll bet you a dollar. It was usually, I'll
2: bet you what you please.
4: Or, I'll
2: bet you what you dare.
4: Or, I'll bet you a trifle. Or else, more significantly still, I'll bet the devil my head. This latter form seemed to please him best, perhaps because it involved the least risk, for Dammit had become excessively parsimonious. Had anyone taken him up, his head was small, and thus his loss would have been small too. At all events, the phrase in question grew daily in favor, notwithstanding the gross impropriety of a man betting his brains like banknotes. In the end, he abandoned all other forms of wager and gave himself up to... I'll bet the devil my head! I began not to like it at all. Mr. Dammit's soul was in a perilous state. I resolved to bring all my eloquence into play to save it. Again, I collected my energies for a final attempt at expostulation. When I had made an end of my lecture, Mr. Dammit remained silent for some moments, merely looking at me inquisitively in the face. Then, applying his thumb to his nose, He thought proper to make an indescribable movement with the rest of his fingers. Finally, setting his arms akimbo, he condescended to reply. I can call to mind only the heads of his discourse.
2: I would be obliged to you if you would hold your tongue. I wish none of your advice. I despise all your insinuations. I'm old enough to take care of myself. Do you still think me a baby, dammit? Do you intend to insult me? Are you a fool? Is your maternal parent aware, in a word, of your absence from the domiciliary residence? I put this latter question to you as a woman of veracity, and I will bind you to abide by my reply. Once more, I demand explicitly, if your mother knows that you are out, I would be willing to bet the devil my head that she
4: does not. Mr. Dammit did not pause for my rejoinder. Turning upon his heel, he left my presence with an undignified precipitation. It was well for him that he did so. My feelings had been wounded. Even my anger had been aroused. For once, I would have taken him up on his insulting wager. I would have won for the arch enemy, Mr. Dammit's little head. For the fact is, my mamma was very well aware of my merely temporary absence from home. But heaven gives relief. It was in pursuance of my duty that I had been insulted, and I bore the insult like a lady. It now seemed to me, however, that I had done all that could be required of me, and I resolved to trouble him no longer with my counsel. But although I forbore to intrude with my advice, I could not bring myself to give up his society altogether. One fine day, having strolled out together, our route led us in the direction of a river. There was a bridge, and we resolved to cross it. It was roofed over by way of protection from the weather, and the archway, having but few windows, was thus very uncomfortably dark. At length, having passed nearly across the bridge, we approached the termination of the footway, when our progress was impeded by a turnstile of some height. Through this I made my way quietly, pushing it around as usual. But this would not serve the turn of Mr. Dammit." He insisted upon leaping the stile and said,
2: I could cut a pigeon
4: wing over it in the air. Now this, conscientiously speaking, I did not think he could do. I therefore told him in so many words that he was a braggadocio and could not do what he said. For this I had reason to be sorry afterward, for he straightway said, I bet the devil my head that I can. I was about to reply with some remonstrance against his impiety when I heard, close at my elbow, a slight cough, which sounded very much like... I started and looked about me in surprise. My glance at length fell into a nook of the framework of the bridge, and upon the figure of a little lame old gentleman of venerable aspect, his hands were clasped pensively together over his stomach, and his two eyes were carefully rolled up into the top of his head. Upon observing him more closely, I perceived that he wore a black silk apron over his clothes, and this was a thing which I thought very odd. Before I had time to make any remark, however, upon so singular a circumstance, he interrupted me with a second. Ahem. To this observation, I was not immediately prepared to reply. The fact is... "'Remarks of this laconic nature are very nearly unanswerable. "'I am not ashamed to say, therefore, "'that I turned to Mr. Dammit for assistance. "'Dammit!' said I. "'What are you about? Don't you hear? "'The gentleman says, ahem!' "'I looked sternly at my friend while I thus addressed him, "'for, to say the truth, I felt particularly puzzled. "'And when a person is particularly puzzled, "'she must knit her brows together and look savage, "'or else she is pretty sure to look like a fool.' Damn it! Although this sounded very much like an oath, nothing was further from my thoughts. Damn it, I suggested. The gentleman says, ahem. If I had shot Mr. Damn it through with a bomb or knocked him on the head with the poets and poetry of America, he could hardly have been more discomfited than when I addressed him with those simple words. Damn it! What are you about? The gentleman says, ahem.
2: (gasps) You don't say so. Are you quite sure he said that? Well, at all events, I am in for it now and may as well put a bold face upon the matter. Here goes then. Ahem.
4: At this, the little old gentleman seemed pleased. God only knows why. He left his station at the nook of the bridge, limped forward with a gracious air, took Dammit by the hand and shook it cordially looking all the while straight up in his face with the most benign air which it is possible for the mind of man to imagine.
3: I am quite sure you will win it,
2: dammit, but we are obliged to have a trial, you know, for the sake of mere form. Ahem.
4: replied my friend, taking off his coat with a deep sigh. The old gentleman now took him by the arm and led him more into the shade of the bridge, a few paces back from the turnstile.
2: My good fellow, I make it a point of conscience to allow you thus much run. Wait here till I take my place by the stile, so that I may see whether you go over it handsomely and transcendentally
3: and don't omit any flourishes of the pigeon wing. A
2: mere form, you know, I will say one, two, three. Three, and away. Mind you, start at the word away.
4: Here he took his position by the stile, paused a moment as if in profound reflection, then looked up and, I thought, smiled very slightly, then tightened the strings of his apron, then took a long look at Dammit, and finally gave the word as agreed upon.
2: One, two, three. And away.
4: Punctually at the word away, my poor friend set off in a strong gallop. The stile was not very high, but upon the whole I made sure that he would clear it. And then what if he did not? What right, said I, had the old gentleman to make any other gentleman jump? Who is he? If he asks me to jump, I won't do it. That's flat and I don't care who the devil he is. In less than five seconds from his starting, my poor Toby had taken a leap. I saw him run nimbly and spring grandly from the floor of the bridge, cutting the most awful flourishes with his legs as he went up. I saw him high in the air, pigeon-winging it to admiration just over the top of the stile, and of course I thought it an unusually singular thing that he did not continue to go over but down came Mr. Dammit on the flat of his back and on the same side of the stile from which he had started. At the same instant, I saw the old gentleman limping off at the top of his speed, having caught and wrapped up in his apron something that fell heavily into it from the darkness of the arch just over the turnstile. At all this, I was much astonished, but I had no leisure to think for Mr. Dammit lay particularly still, and I concluded that his feelings had been hurt, and that he stood in need of my assistance. I hurried up to him, and found that he had received what might be termed as a serious injury. (laughs) The truth is, he had been deprived of his head, which after a close search I could not find anywhere, so I determined to take him home and send for the homeopaths. In the meantime, a thought struck me, and I threw open an adjacent window of the bridge when the sad truth flashed upon me at once. About five feet just above the top of the turnstile and crossing the arch of the footpath so as to constitute a brace, there extended a flat iron bar, lying with its breadth horizontally and forming one of a series that served to strengthen the structure throughout its extent. With the edge of this brace, it appeared evident that the neck of my unfortunate friend had come precisely in contact. He did not long survive his terrible loss. The homeopaths did not give him little enough physic, and what little they did give him he hesitated to take. So in the end he grew worse and at length died, a lesson to all riotous livers. I bedewed his grave with my tears, and for the general expenses of his funeral, sent in my very moderate bill to the transcendentalists. The scoundrels refused the pay, so I had Mr. Dammit dug up at once
0: and sold him for dog's meat. Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Christopher Hainsworth. Produced by Lifeline Theatre and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifeline theater.